Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So our guest today is my colleague, uh, Tatiana Bolton, who is the Director of Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats at R Street. So Tatiana, welcome to the program. Why, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, yes. And uh, so I wanted to have you on because, of course, we have seen in the last, in recent weeks, there have been a number of high-profile hacking, ransom incidents that have happened. There's the Colonial Pipeline, there's some other things. I thought it would be a good idea since, you know, R Street has its own cybersecurity project to bring you on, just talk a little bit about the issue in general and some of the the problems and risks that are out there and some of the things that can, we can do about it. Uh, but before we get into any of that, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, your background, that sort of thing. Sure. So uh, I'm the director, as you mentioned, of the cybersecurity and emerging threats team here at R Street. We work on things like cybermetrics, supply chain security, diversity in cybersecurity, and quantum. All kinds of all kinds of issues. Uh, I came from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission before this, where I was the policy director, working on resilience and uh, other issues, like the National Cyber Director, which uh, was a position and office that was officially pulled pushed through in the National Defense Authorization Act last year, and a filled by Chris Inglis last week, which was very exciting. And before that, I was at CISA, the cybersecurity agency, working on working on all types of cyber policy in the federal government. All right. So, you know, my knowledge of cybersecurity issues is pretty slight. Uh, I see the movie Sneakers several decades ago, which touched on this, but that's-, oh, that's probably- Well, you're all caught up then. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Cyber so doesn't change, you know, two two decades. Right, that's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. How prepared are people? I guess let's start with that. Obviously, we are in a situation now where you know, even pipelines, other things, everything seems like it's computerized or hooked up to the internet or whatnot. So, like, what what kind of vulnerabilities are there out there in the current system? Mm. How scared do you want to be? Uh, <laughs> our communications director, uh, Bill, often uh, often tells me that uh, when he talks to me, I just scare the crap out of him, and then he goes on about his day. So it, it's it's bad, you know. We've got everything from the Department of Defense to Homeland Security, our energy infrastructure, water plants you know, healthcare services, including your medical records and, you know, uh, you know, MRI machines, lasers for surgery, um, to uh, tax records and, um, you know, cars connected to the internet. And therefore, all of them are vulnerable to, all of them are vulnerable to cyber attacks. And you've seen how this has impacted regular people in the, with the Colonial Pipeline hack, where, you know, millions of people were waiting for gas. Uh, you know, a lot of that was panic buying, but it did significantly, the the hack on the Colonial Pipeline system significantly impacted um, 
their ability to provide fuel up and down the East Coast. You also saw it in the SolarWinds hack uh, that impacted more than 18,000 different entities. Uh, that's companies, not people. So, you know, the number of people, you know, you just multiply by, uh, you know, the number of employees at any given entity that was hacked. And so you see the extent to which um, some of the some of this can impact everyday lives. Um, SolarWinds and the Microsoft Exchange hack, which happened, you know, a month or two after, uh, or I guess was... Uh, talked about or, or publicized a month or two after, because honestly, SolarWinds happened in 20, uh, the beginning of 2020. We only found out about it in December. Um, but it's everywhere. And uh, every day, you should wake up terrified. Okay, well, that's that's good. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I assume that it's only going to get worse as more and more, you know, I can still use my toothbrush that's not connected to the internet yet. Uh, that's good. That's uh, but you Although know, who knows? Yeah. Do you want to brush your teeth anymore yourself? Really? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it is get on the one hand, it's getting worse, but on the other hand, quite honestly, I think maybe we're just seeing it more now. People are just more aware of it. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily that it's worse. I mean, I guess you could argue ransomware has gotten really out of hand in the last year uh, with um, hackers trying to uh, ransom Ransom data to healthcare systems, the vaccine uh, development got hacked uh, for ransom, Colonial Pipeline, um, a number of different agencies. And those are just the ones we know about. Uh, we don't have a national data breach reporting law. So uh, there are probably millions of entities that have been hacked and we just aren't sure. We don't, we just don't know that that happened. A lot of companies keep it to themselves because um, of the reputational damage and, and the liability considerations. But, you know, we are doing, you know, a good job, I think, of, of uh, trying to improve uh, federal cybersecurity, of trying to improve private, uh, private, private public coordination so that we have companies and the federal government working together along with state and local entities to try and improve the, the state of cybersecurity. Where a lot of places are moving to zero trust networks, we're seeing the adoption of two-factor authentication a lot more, which is really good. People are trying to move to these um, uh, password managers, which is excellent. I highly recommend it, along with a along with uh, like a Google Authenticator app, for example, which is a, a two-factor authentication protocol. Um, a lot of these things have become a lot easier to do, right? Like Google just has uh, put master password system into its uh, internet search sort of uh, um, ecosystem. And so that's a lot easier to do. And I think the easier we can get some of this technology, the faster we'll adopt it as consumers, and then we'll be a lot more secure. So on the, the you raised the issue of the, we don't have a duty to report uh, cybersecurity breaches. Uh, what would that look like? What would be the pros and cons if for having such a requirement? Well, so the biggest pro to having a national uh, data reporting law or a breach reporting law, which I uh, which I uh, highly recommend and was recommended by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, which I was on, as I mentioned, um, is that we get a unified threat picture. We have in the, you know, the federal government is aware of the vulnerabilities and threats to our critical infrastructure. And that's the biggest issue. It's not your, you know, Uncle Tim's dry cleaning on the corner. It's the National Security Agency. 
right? Or, um, or our electrical grid or uh, the water system, right? The last year, Oldsmar water uh, got, uh, oh, the water system got hacked and uh, there were multiple other attacks on water systems. Uh, some, so some of those uh, we know about, uh, but the private companies that own our critical infrastructure, then the estimate is about 80% of 80 to 85%. The number is arguable. Uh, 80, 80 to 85% is owned by the private sector. And so of those, if it happens in the private sector, we don't know about it. And so the the biggest benefit is that we can see now where all of the hacks are coming. And when we can see the threat and vulnerabilities, that's when we can prepare and respond appropriately. So that's the biggest thing. The, the, the con is that obviously, you know, the federal government, you know, when it gets the information, the question, you know, becomes what are the liabilities there? What, you know, what happens with that information? How do we better respond? Does the federal government have the capacity to respond, even if it knows about all this? You know, I argue that those are questions that we uh, that are that are possible to address, but not having a full threat picture is catastrophic. And so we really need to address that. And who is kind of behind these cyber attacks? Is it just like uh, the 400 pound guy in, uh, in his bedroom in New Jersey or his mom bed, mom's bedroom in New Jersey or what? Like, do, what do we know about who is doing uh, this sort of stuff? All right. Well, basically, there's two groups. Right. So you've got your hackers, got random people in their basement. Sometimes it's uh, a teenager just chilling out in his mom's house and he's bored and he's hacking the Department of Defense. No joke that happens. There's there's also like kind of hacker collectives. So the Colonial Pipeline hack, for example, was a perpetrated by a group called Darkside, um, which was a, like a it's like a collection of hackers. Some of them provide hacking services. Uh, some of them provide uh, sort of the money processing part of it, of the or operation. Some of them just organize these things. Some of them find vulnerabilities. Some of them have exploitation tools and they get together and then they uh, sort of, you know, it makes it easier. It's like hacking for a service. Um, so they, they uh, use their different, um, use their different tools and abilities together to hack bigger, sort of bigger fish, right? These aren't like sole, um, hackers that can go after a small company. These are like collectives that can go after, you know, some fairly significant targets. But the second group is arguably the more dangerous group, and that's state actors. So in that group, we have Russia, China, and then um, in the second tier, we've got North Korea and Iran. And for the United States, those are the four main uh, threats uh, in cyberspace. China, um, I would say, is uh, China is is a significant threat to the United States, especially as it kind of grows in power in the uh, world order, and uh, they're trying to collect as much of our information as they can, most likely to use that information to advantage their strategic decision making and prepare for any eventuality, uh, like war, for example, to sort of think to sort of get information about our weapons, our strategies, our um, military readiness, things like that, uh, to prepare themselves. Um, you know, they don't, I don't think they're preparing for war. I think they're just being cautious, uh, collecting data. Russia, on the other hand, has been uh, significant. You know, a significant actor. They've 
uh, hacked our elections. Uh, they've they've hacked into our electrical grid. They're using some disruptive tactics uh, to try to main. You know the the powers that be there are trying to hold on to power, uh, and they're doing that um, by kind of weakening um, weakening the. Um, democracies around the world. They also attack uh, their near abroad, such as Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, those are some significant, those are the significant problems. So you got the hackers and you've got the state actors. You, you've already kind of alluded to it, but maybe just build out on a little bit more. Um, and we probably could, I'm sure we could do an entire episode on this, but uh, talk about Russia for a second. You said that they're trying to sort of destabilize democracies. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, they're, what what all are their aims with their hacking efforts? Is it really just to kind of weaken our markets, our societies and create dis- disruption? I mean, there's is there any, any more salient objective beyond that? Is it just to sort of create distress and dissension or, or what, what all's behind it? So, I mean, I think that Russia has... Um, Russia has sort of varied goals. They not only in Russia, not only do they use their sort of intelligence services and cybersecurity capabilities of the government to uh, to hack United States entities, but they also have criminal organizations operating within their borders, like Darkside, uh, Colonial Pipeline Hacker Group, um, and they sort of perpetrate hacks, which the Russian government probably knows about, but um, but doesn't do anything about. So I, there, some of the groups are, some of the groups are trying to make money, but it's a lot different, you know, in my, uh, opinion than for example, North Korea, which is literally only, uh, hacking for money. Like they try to maintain their weapons programs and their, um, and, and get food and whatever through hacking. They literally steal cryptocurrency. They steal money. They, uh, they do ransoms. That's not the same activity that we're seeing from Russia. Russia is, um, either trying to destabilize, uh, Western democracies, uh, weaken the perception of strength, uh, in the West or trying to to hold at risk certain critical infrastructure uh, to prevent, for example, the United States from, uh, you know, attacking their infrastructure, right? So they, you know, uh, I think that uh, they want to keep us at bay. They don't want to, they don't want to allow the United States to be in a position where we're free to act as we will. I think they want to constrain our ability to respond and our ability to act freely. And so that's part of the reason that they uh, so aggressively pursue the United States in cyberspace, because they can't obviously pursue that in, um, you know, in a kinetic war. Okay, so let's, so what can be done? Uh, So let's, first, I just want to talk about, I want to talk about some things that can be done at the policy level. But first, just at a personal level, you know, what, what can people do to try and protect themselves uh, or their business or other stuff like that from some of these things. So there's some like really easy stuff. Like we'll, we'll start with like consumers, like just, you, you know, you and me, um, what can we do to protect ourselves and our companies? Right. Uh, one, if you are a, uh, if you're just operating on the internet, don't use unsecured Wi-Fi. Don't go to, you know, days in and, log into the Wi-Fi. Just don't do it. 
Like, unless you have a specific password that's unique to you that no one else knows, please don't get on there. Don't get on the Wi-Fi at Starbucks. Just quit doing that. You can use a hotspot. You can like, you know, get on the internet at home, use your phone's connection to the internet. Don't, don't go on unsecured Wi-Fi. Uh, also use a password manager. Oh, for the sweet love of God, it's not that bad. Just, it's actually super easy. Once you get into it, once you like set up one or two passwords, it becomes like, like much easier than using actual passwords. Remembering them is awful. Who can remember passwords? That's part of the reason that they're so insecure is that naturally humans hate like trying to remember so many different things. Like we have brain space for other important things like sports scores and, you know, prices of, you know, clothes online. Uh, we want to focus our brain on the stuff that's interesting to us. And <laughs> I mean, tell me, Josiah, do you think that passwords are very interesting? I think not. So, you know, just use that password manager uh, and uh, use two-factor authentication if you can. So two-factor authentication, not that hard. Uh, if you have a phone, if you have a lot, and, and obviously, like the uh, obviously, phones have become, or uh, you know, iPhones or Samsung, like Galaxy phone, whatever, have become very ubiquitous. And so, all of those have the ability to download a free app from Google or whatever, um, whatever company you want to use. You want to use. And basically, they just give you a code on your phone. You open the app, and it just gives you three numbers or six numbers. And whenever you try to log into Gmail, for example, instead of automatically logging you in with a password, it it sends you a you, it sends you the number, and you put the number in on your email, right? On your instead of a like along with your password, and then it makes sure it's you. That way, not only like in order to steal your identity or to get into your or to get into your um, email, not only would they have to have your password but they'd also have to have your phone. And that's a lot harder because most hackers aren't coming at the, at, to your house or your work and like taking uh, physical stuff from you. They're literally just sitting in their house. So if there's a hacker trying to get money, they're not gonna, they're not gonna try and steal your phone. If you have two-factor authentication, it would prevent something like 80% of cyber attacks. So, you know, do it. Password managers, two-factor authentication, and don't use public Wi-Fi. Uh, for the, the biggest thing I would say for small businesses is, use the cloud. The cloud and the protection that it provides and the amount of money that the cloud service providers put into the security of those products is by far more anything than anything that you personally would be able to do to secure your business yourself, right? No matter what kind of like smart security protocols you think you can put in, the chances of you making an error in that configuration, right, as you're setting it up, right, like clicking the wrong button in one area or giving like admin access uh, to somebody who doesn't need it or um, setting up the wrong email or forgetting something is a lot higher. So just use the systems that are built securely. You know, the cloud has become, uh, secure cloud has become a lot more um uh, a lot more accessible to everybody. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's a lot smarter to, to go that route than try and do it yourself. Josiah raised policy. Is there is there a clear ideological difference of approach between the right and left? I mean, I can see a difference in terms of partisan politics, but that's usually just whatever the other guy said, we're opposed to it because we're opposed to everything they do. But is there like an, a you know, a, a long-standing ideological difference of opinion, of approach, of strategy when it comes to cybersecurity, and, and, and particularly when it comes to cybersecurity policy. Uh, so this is the great thing about cybersecurity. I would say that there is not. 
This is one of the last remaining bastions of nonpartisanship in the, on the Hill uh, and sort of throughout the policymaking landscape. So I, I always say that um, cybersecurity is national security, and that uh, has been and should remain nonpartisan. Uh, it's really important that we we think about this from the perspective of securing our, our nation and our borders and our uh, our way of life. And as we go about doing that, we need all hands on deck and we need to do this um, in a nonpartisan fashion. Uh, generally speaking, there have been uh, very few bills that have passed in the last, uh, you know, two, three, four years. Some of the biggest ones have been on cybersecurity. Um, in 2015, uh, the CISA bill passed, which, um, which created liability protections for information sharing in cybersecurity. Now, uh, I, alas, that didn't actually lead to better information sharing because people didn't believe, companies didn't believe that um, that liability protection would hold, which I'm not actually sure why, uh, because it is strong and they should share information with the federal government. Uh, but uh, the other, another bill in 2018 uh, labeled CISA as the nation's cybersecurity agency, um, again, on a, in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, you saw a unanimous consent vote for Chris Inglis as the national security di- cyber director. Uh, and, and so I, I think that you, you see a lot of uh, co- collaboration, cooperation there. Our commission for the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was a bipartisan commission with, uh, with a... Uh, co-chairs that were both a Republican and a, and a Democrat, or I guess Angus King, Senator Angus King is an independent uh, who caucuses with the Democrats. But, um, you know, I think we see a lot of co- cooperation. Uh, there's some, you know, discussion as to the um, the importance of regulation in this space or uh, the extent to which uh, requirements are necessary. But I think even there you see a lot of um, a lot of agreement from both sides, because at this point, I think it's it's evident to anyone who's been paying attention that the attacks just keep coming and whatever we're doing has not been sufficient. And that's been the sort of voluntary efforts by private sector and the federal government to try and do this. And so you're seeing a lot more push for um, national data breach reporting uh, notifications, uh, data security and data privacy legislation that's national. Right now, we have basically 50 plus state laws that are uh, that govern your data privacy um, and your data security uh, online. And uh, national data privacy and data security law is is so important so that um, you know even companies. Uh, can have one set of standards that they live by instead of trying to meet 50 different sort of compliance regimes across the country. Um, so you see, you know, even in the regulation and, ma- and, and uh, mandates and requirements space, you still see uh, uh, some some great collab- collaboration in cyberspace. So what are sort of the, the biggest uh, policy obstacles then? Is it is it a matter of, it's just a matter of, it's not a high enough priority in people's minds, or is it down to, um, you know, actually financing more robust programs? What's sort of your biggest p- policy hurdle? Yeah, I think both of those, um, both of those, Doug, are, are fairly sizable um, in cyber. Uh, generally, people are not as aware as I think they need to be about the risks that we face. I think, Uh, You know, one of the very unfortunate things that a lot of people always say about cybersecurity is that, you know, we'll get true cybersecurity after there's a massive attack that significantly impacts all of us. 
which is unfortunate because you don't want that to happen. Uh, you know, the commission fought very hard to kind of um, to make some changes before a huge cyber attack crippled, for example, an entire like section of the country uh, because it could. Right. If we get a significant attack on our electrical grid and the power goes out to everything, there won't be enough generators, uh, you know, anywhere to to help us survive through that um, through that, you know, two, three, four day outage. Right. It'll be very it'll be significant. Uh, it'll be like a massive hurricane, um, you know, battering uh, one of our uh, one of our cities or, or, or states. Um, we don't want to wait until then. Uh, and the and the funding is is the other big problem, um, like you mentioned. Uh, cybersecurity gets one one hundredth or less of the funding that um, Defense Department gets for sort of broader national security. Uh, now, to be fair, uh, defense the defense budget's seven hundred plus billion dollar a year budget includes some cybersecurity funding, including uh, about twenty million for Cybercom, uh, but uh, Cyber Command. But uh, that's nothing compared to the $2 million that CISA gets, right? CISA, CISA is supposed to be the nation's cybersecurity experts and the people who respond and train and uh, do, all, do all of this for, for our um, cybersecurity. And they're supposed to do it on $2 billion a year compared to 700 plus. And like, it's, it's, it's not even close. And I, I think everyone has acknowledged that that is a big issue. So what do you think of, uh, and this is, this is an idea I've heard bandied about by cybersecurity expert Jonah Goldberg. Uh, he's suggested that we should engage in basically old school privateering where we, we encourage private hackers in the United States to retaliate to Russian hackers. Uh, it seems like that would be a way to sort of uh, cut through the budgetary problems, right? I mean, you just, just encourage these people from, uh, from American soil to hack the Russians. What do you think of an idea like that? Uh, well, so, you know, I am not a big fan of the hackback uh, concept. Um, you can also look to Dmitry Alperovich, if you don't trust me, um, also uh, thinks that it's a bad idea. Uh, so does the majority of Department of Defense uh, and uh, a lot of different cyber experts, because, you know, what you get when you get into the um, into the hackback, uh, you know, suggestion recommendation is that. One, companies are not, should not be going out and out across um, sort of the lines, if you will, of uh, international, um, uh, international borders and going into other companies across, uh, across those borders to get into those networks. You're, you're getting into the realm where you um, may have adverse reactions, which you or adverse uh, effects, which you didn't intend, and uh, if or you could um, easily kind of do you know have a little bit of overkill and like Colonial Pipeline, for example, they they said, well, I didn't we didn't mean to turn off all of the gas to the East Coast. Uh, we just were trying to get some money. The same thing might happen with hack back. Uh, but if you're dealing with like China, for example, and a company goes and hacks a company in China, right, for stealing some of their data, uh, you may start a world war. I mean, it, the 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 risks to that are significant. And the 
um, and the payment or the, you know, the benefit is not that high because quite honestly, most companies, one, don't have the skill to do it anyway. And even if you did, you'd have to go through some kind of review process, which would probably be more onerous than, um, than the benefits of, of doing it. So not a fan. So we like to ask guests on the program to tell us what their favorite uh, movie, TV show, cultural product is that relates to the conversation. I, of course, already took the best uh, answer, which is uh, the sneakers uh, uh, with Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, and uh, Sidney Poitier, and James Earl Jones. But setting aside that, what what is your favorite uh, movie or TV show or thing like that that has to do with uh, cybersecurity or other such issues? Oh my god, you put me on the spot. I don't even think I've watched any good um <laughs> any any good movies. Um but you know, I think uh War Games um is probably one that's credit that's that's a that's a cool movie and it it credited it's credited with kind of being the first to kind of uh start the conversation about like cyber. Um it's about a high school student who hacks into a military supercomputer. Um so, you know, that one's that one's probably my Classic, classic. Okay, so our guest today has been Tatiana Bolton. Thank you very much for joining us on the Remain Cowboys. Thank you for having me.